Welcome everybody to our healing conversations. And I've sort of, I've kept the best for last, I have to say. I'm here with my great buddy, Joe Dispenza. Now, I don't think there's anybody in the world who doesn't know who Dr. Joe Dispenza is, but if you're one of that tiny, tiny minority, he's an internationally best-selling author. He's an incredible international speaker. He speaks around the world and he has focused his life on the interface between science and spirituality, science and neuroscience and spirituality and spontaneous healing. And like me, he's seen a lot of these things. So welcome, Dr. Joe. So great to be here with you. I'm always happy to be with you, Lynn. Great to see you again. Great. And by the way, if you don't know who I am, I'm Lynn McTaggart. I am an internationally best-selling author. Um, I have four books in the field of science and spirituality, books like The Field, The Intention Experiment, The Bond, and my latest book, The Power of Eight. And I also run a weird thing called The Intention Experiment. I'll, I'll be talking to you a little bit about some of our latest experiments later. But Joe and I share a couple of things. Beside being fascinated by the same subjects, we are also both from New Jersey, both Italian. So you're going to get some real good straight talking here. So wonderful. So I thought our talk would be all about spontaneous healing, paving the way from healing, um, paving the way for healing. What makes people heal? And the reason I asked Joe is it's so fascinating to look, for instance, at the database from the Institute of Noetic Sciences. And I know you have in one of your books too, um, showing that people can have spontaneous healings of all sorts of things, even cancer. You know, a certain percentage, a good percentage of people just reverse their cancer, doing nothing physical to it. Uh, people have spontaneous healings from diabetes, heart disease, all those kinds of things where they say the physical body is broken. So we're gonna explore a little bit why this happens, but also what we've seen in the work we've done, because both of us do work where we see people with all kinds of diseases, all kinds of conditions, all kinds of issues spontaneously heal. So Joe, why don't you kick off a little bit? Let's, what do you see in your big courses? You see people who have had all kinds of things and something shifts in them. Why do you think that happens? Gosh, it's a, it's a, it's a question that we probably could talk about for hours. Uh, and and I, I, like you, I'm always interested in demystifying the process so that it's repeatable, that people have within the reach, their reach, some tools to begin to apply to their lives. So I think one of the things is, is that uh, for the most part, people stay the same in their life. They're thinking the same thoughts, they're making the same choices, they're doing the same things, they're reliving the same experiences and, and create, those experiences create the same feelings and the same emotions. And as long as that's the same, their biology is the same. So the fundamental question that I started to ask is if we could get people to retreat from their lives for one week and to remove the constant stimulation in their external environment that reminds them of who they think they are as a personality. As they separate themselves from all the different people and places and things in their life and 
give them the information and knowledge and combine a little quantum physics with neuroscience and neuroendocrinology and, and psychoneuroimmunology and epigenetics, if they begin to think differently, if they begin to make different choices, if they begin to do different things, if they begin to create new experiences that produce new feelings and new emotions, is that information relevant enough to begin to change their biology? And, and what we see is that people that actually do this over time, they begin to change their gene expression. They begin to change their immune regulation. They begin to change how their brain works, how their heart works. Uh, and they begin to cause all kinds of different metabolic changes taking place on a cellular level. And I think the most important part about it, Lynn, is that people need to know that this is the truth. And when people start to realize that it is the truth, then they begin to take their power back and say, yes, I may need a medication, I may need a supplement, I may need to do exercise. Those are all the things that we do in our lifestyle. But even if you do those things in your lifestyle and you're still the same, it's highly possible that your healing will take a longer amount of time. So, so that's one of the things. What about you? What do you, what do you see? <clears throat> I see a similar kind of thing where it's, and, and I guess for me, it's concentrating on thought processes. And what we look at, you know, when you look at the IONS database, you see when you talk about um, cancer, people who overcome cancer, oftentimes you see that they've developed cancer because of what people call a trapped rat syndrome. They just don't believe life is going to get any better than it is for them. And they feel trapped in a bad marriage, in a bad job, or something like that. And that would suggest that what's giving them the cancer are their thoughts. So for us, also, it's about changing that thought process. And one of the fast tracks I've found, of course, is group intention. And one of the most powerful things, I think, that happens there is what the mystics call unio mystico, you know, or, or the, the Course in Miracles calls uh, the holy instant, what a lot of other people call a spiritual orgasm. Basically, it's somebody getting into a mystical state. And what we've seen is in the large group intention experiments and the small group intentions and my power of eight groups, what usually happens is people have five characteristics that happen. Number one, they have big physical changes. They feel different things. They're crying, they get goosebumps. Uh, something physical happens to them. Then they feel a sense of unity with the other participants. They step out of their own sense of separation and, um, and isolation. They see things more clearly. They see, you know, the grass is greener, the, the flowers smell sweeter, things, their senses are altered. They oftentimes have a big blinding epiphany of meaning, something like what, you know, the astronaut Edgar Mitchell had when he was coming back from the moon and he had this amazing epiphany. And then they also have a sense of rejuvenation. So that suggests to me that something about diving into that state, that state of, of unity, of oneness, is something in there is so supportive for change and for stepping out of themselves, as you say, that I think that is the trigger in my work. Mm. 
Yeah, so, so it seems like there's the known self, you know, the aspect of ourselves that we know, and then there's an aspect of ourselves called the unknown self, and that transcendental moment a lot of times is that moment where you have a perspective that's greater than the known self, and, and, and working somebody up into that state where they're no longer in separation is one of the most challenging things in the healing process, because unfortunately the diagnosis the disease, the trauma, the news somehow causes the person to have a moment in time where they feel altered. In other words, when they get the diagnosis uh, from the doctor, they have a moment where there's a change in their internal state. They feel fear, they feel sadness. That moment is altering their internal state. And the more altered they're inside of themselves, the more they pay attention to what's causing it outside of them. And the brain takes a snapshot and that's a long-term memory. So that moment in time then, from the time they get their diagnosis, is a moment that begins to brand that moment neurologically in their brain and begins to send a strong chemical signal called an emotion to their body. And so then now they're in separation. They're gonna wait for their healing to take place in order to feel joy, in order to feel gratitude, in order to feel reborn again or you know in an altered state. And that kind of idealism of separation is waiting for something outside of ourselves to change in order for us to feel better inside of ourselves, to take away the emptiness, the separation, or the lack. And when we move into a transcendental state, something unique happens. We, we begin to feel the emotions of the event before it actually changes in our outer environment. In other words, the person who moves into that state of connection, that state of ecstasy, that state of insight, the moment they notice that change inside of them, without an experience outside of them, their body is so objective that it does not know the difference between the real life experience that would be creating that emotion and the, the emotion the person's experiencing by thought alone. So if the environment signals the gene, according to epigenetics, and it does, and the end product of an experience in the environment is an emotion, in a sense, that person is signaling the gene ahead of the environment, and genes make proteins, and proteins are responsible for the structure and function of the body, and the expression of proteins is the expression of life. So the person in one moment, the amplitude of the emotion of connection or ecstasy or wholeness or bliss or whatever they're feeling tends to be greater than the betrayal or the diagnosis that created the fear in the first place. And that tends to reorganize the circuitry in the brain and sends a new chemical signal to the body. And it, sometimes it's profound enough that literally it begins to upregulate genes for the expression of health and it begins to downregulate those genes that have to do with the disease that the person is facing. And it, the, the unique part about it is that it's happening in real time. In other words, the experience that the person is having in that moment is literally changing them. So that means then it's no longer their changes taking place in a lifestyle, which is matter to matter, avoid certain foods, do certain things, exercise a certain way, take these nutritional supplements. Those are the things that we do matter to matter. This instant is now somehow energy is beginning to influence matter. And it's not matter that's actually creating energy, it's energy that's creating matter. And that energetic field, that quantum field, if we change the signature in the field, 
we change the hologram in matter. And so there goes the tumor, there goes the Parkinson's, there goes the MS, there goes the rare genetic disorder, because the person had a moment in time that was greater than any past experience that kept them connected to the same emotional state. In other words, if the person's living by the same emotion of fear, they can think positively all they want. The thinking positively never actually makes it to the body because the body's feeling a different emotion. The mind and body are in opposition. But when the person moves into that elegant state where they're feeling the emotion of the future before it happens, the, the, the door is open in a matter of seconds for the body to, to literally be reprogrammed by a new mind. And, and now energy is instructing or informing matter in a certain way. And the instantaneous change then that's taking place is enough for the person to know without a doubt that there's been some change in their well-being. Now, getting to that point is something we could only talk around. You know, it's something that you have to overcome those unconscious thoughts that you were talking about. You have to break free of the programmed habituations and, and, and hardwired um, um, behaviors and, and, and really overcome the emotions that keep you connected to the past because if the emotions from past experiences are influencing your thoughts and those thoughts are making the same chemicals for you to feel the same emotions, the redundancy of that cycle of thinking and feeling is the exact opposite. The body's believing it's in the same past experience 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. So the body is believing it's in the same past experience and that's the tendency for the body to be programmed genetically. So in one moment when there's an elevated state and that transcendental moment causes the person to have a glimpse of themselves instead of being knocked to their lowest denominator where they can finally see themselves, pay attention to their thoughts, their behaviors and emotions, from an elevated state, a greater level of consciousness, they can look at their past and see it was perfect. Everything makes sense to them because it had to happen for them to get to this moment. And that's, I think, the moment uh, that the past no longer exists. That's really interesting. Yeah, whenever you look back with a rear view mirror, uh, everything is perfect. Everything is where it was supposed to be to get you to this place. You said so many good things, Joe, and I'm going to just um, pick up some of the things you talked about. Uh, you talked about diagnoses, these toxic diagnoses, and I think that's one of the big issues. I actually do a course called Become a Better Healer Through the Power of Eight, and it's directed at practitioners because I take, I keep, I keep records and notes of bad conversations with diagnoses. They're so terrible. I mean, I know of a case of a guy who had leukemia who was doing really well because he didn't know he had leukemia. And he was going into the hospital regularly and getting treatments. And all of a sudden, one day when his doctor was out of the office, he read upside down that he had leukemia. The guy was dead the next day. Now, or the next week, I think it was. Now, nothing had changed. Nothing had changed. They couldn't find anything physically that had changed in him. That thought had killed him. And that had affected all of those processes you're talking about. So it's, it starts oftentimes with the diagnosis, the sense of hopelessness. Um, and as I say, I talk to and collect from practitioners 
the wrong ways to talk to patients. Because whenever I've seen a doctor always, always transmit hope, that is what I know of as a real healer. As my, uh, my mother-in-law had, she had end-stage breast cancer, too late to get any uh, conventional treatments. So we brought her to an integrative specialist who looked at her breast, which was essentially raw meat. And I was in the, I was in the room with her when he was examining her for a little bit of moral support. And I heard him say, oh, I can handle that. We can handle that. And I thought, yes, she's healed right now. And she was, she lived for many, many more years uh, with some very simple changes to her diet. But I think the hope and the support of the family is what upregulated all of that possibility you talk about. I also wanted to talk about just oneness, this idea of getting to that state. One thing that's been really fascinating for me is the power of intention in groups. And as you know, I run a year long course called the Power of Eight Intention Masterclass, where I actually put people in groups and I monitor them for a whole year to see what changes in their lives. And what I have found is it's essentially a fast track to that field that you're talking about, that quantum field. Because over and over people say, I suddenly felt this sense of oneness. And I think that is our potential state that you were talking about, this, this, this elevated transcendental state. And we don't get to feel that. That's our natural birthright. That's who we really are. We have this extraordinary capacity. You've seen it a million times, Joe. I've seen it a million times. People healing spontaneously. So it demonstrates we have this ability to heal. So we need to look for methods um, to get to that state. And, but the important information is to know that when we do step out of this sense of separation, when we have a glimpse of what the field is like, that can be, and so that we feel our actual being as part of something bigger, that can be hugely healing. Yeah, I, I, I happen to agree with you 100%. And, and there is this elegant moment, you know, in the research that we've done, Lynn, where when we're looking at, a, say, a brain scan in real time, we actually can predict uh, and induce uh, many times that state where a person literally gets beyond themselves. They get beyond their association to all the things that they identify with that's material and known in this three-dimensional reality. In other words, they forget that they are a physical body. They forget about the people in their life. They forget about the things and the objects that they own, the place they're sitting, the place they live, the place they work. Uh, they forget about time, you know, trying to predict what's going to happen in the, the, the next moment and, or what happened in the past. In a sense, they dissociate from everything physical and material and become pure consciousness. And it is that moment that you can only talk around uh, where you finally surrender uh, to trying to control and force an outcome. And that letting go process somehow is a moment of going from separation uh, to a moment of connecting to a resource uh, that we have available to us all the time. But the real question is, 
how much of our waking day do we put our attention on matter, on the physical world, and how much of our waking day do we put our attention on energy and information? And so teaching people how to get to that moment where they start connecting uh, to that field, uh, they'll have to understand a certain amount of science to be able to, to build a model. But the important point is, is they have to overcome some unconscious programming that you and I and all of us have fallen prey to. And, and that is that we are unconsciously conditioned into believing that our outer world, we need something from our outer world, an object, a thing, an experience to change our inner world. And that means we're reliant on, a, uh, on some exogenous substance or something outside of us. And, and, and so if we're reliant on something outside of us to change our internal state, by the same means, the more we react to any news in the environment, any condition in our outer world, our response to the environment can actually weaken the living organism. In other words, your frustration, your anger, your fear, your anxiety, your pain, your guilt, it's those reactions to events in our outer world that actually begin to weaken the living organism. So when a person all of a sudden is no longer responding to the conditions in their life the same way, I think that is the first step where the healing can begin to really sustain itself because you could have the most incredible meditation of your life and then get up and start reacting to your coworker, to your boss, to your ex, to your mother-in-law, whatever it is, uh, to traffic, to the news, and you're back to that same personality uh, that's connected to the same personal reality. And the environment now is constantly controlling the way a person feels and thinks. And if the environment is controlling a person's feelings and thoughts, then they are victim to their environment and they're more prone than to anything in their environment to weaken them. So now they're more reliant on something in their environment to change their state. This is not that. This is where we reach the point where we say, the doctor told me I have six months to live. Uh, I'm in incredible pain. The medications aren't working. Uh, the chemotherapy is not working. The surgery didn't work. What am I left with? I'm left with myself and my belief in possibility. Now, unfortunately, this has been the path for many people where it is the wake up call. It's the wake up moment. And yet you and I have seen people who have made a decision uh, in one moment. And I've interviewed enough people that have had spontaneous healings. I've always asked them, what was that defining moment? And they say, you know what? I realized that this stuff always made sense to me, but I had the unconscious belief that it worked for everybody else but me. I just didn't really, I never came up against that. And now they're stepping out of the bleachers and they're stepping on the playing field because now it's the time for them to prove to themselves that it can actually work for them. This is a profound moment because that person then makes a decision that they're going to change. And that decision is not wishy-washy. They make a decision with such firm intention that the amplitude of that decision is carrying a level of energy that's causing their body to respond to their mind. That the choice that they're making in that moment becomes a moment in time that they would never forget. And the stronger the emotion they feel from that decision, the more they remember the choice that they make. And that's a huge explosion in the quantum field. That's a, that's a nodal point where now 
they're giving their body a sampling emotionally of the future. And they will say to you, I remember the moment I decided to change. I remember the moment I made up my mind to change. And from that point on, it was no longer labor. It was no longer work. Of course, it was challenging, but they wouldn't miss a day because they made that commitment to themselves. And so it may take them six months to overcome their unconscious thoughts, their automatic behaviors and habits and their emotional responses. And then all of a sudden from the outsider who's looking in, that person has a transcendental moment and they think, oh, that person's so special. They're so lucky they had that moment. But they weren't watching that person's change in behavior, change in thoughts and change in emotions that led to that moment and that elegant moment then where they are transcendent of their personality is the moment that that intelligence that's, that we are connected to whose signature is wholeness and oneness, whose signature is pure love, whatever, bliss, ecstasy, can leak, can move through us. And that's the moment that the body begins to heal. That's the moment that there's a, a change in our biology. There's, there's a biological upgrade that takes place. And more and more people are beginning to experience that because it's the four minute mile you witness the four minute mile and then everybody jumps on. And, 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 and that's the important point in history right now that that information is so readily available that when you see a person in your workshops or in my workshop, stand on the stage with stage four cancer and tell their story from start to finish. And it's not a glamorous Hollywood version and they lost everything and they lost family and, and they got worse and then they got a worse diagnosis, but they never gave up. And they stand on the stage and you're looking at truth. This, this is the example of truth right in front of you. And that person doesn't look young and buffed and a vegan. They don't look like they got it all. They just look at a normal person. And that's when everybody leans in and looks because they want to know that that person is telling the truth. And they are because their, their experience of what they did is helping somebody in the audience with a similar condition. And that's when all of a sudden uh, the person says, if that person can do it, I can do it. And they step into that footprint. And the cool part about it is many times they do it, that change in half the amount of time. Well, it's in the field, there's information, a footprint in the field, and there's evidence right in front of the person. And then that four minute mile becomes somebody else's opportunity to prove to themselves that it's actually possible. And so then just like an infection spreads amongst a community and creates disease, and all of a sudden health and wellness become as infectious as diseases. And I, and I think uh, this is the time in history where it's not enough to know. This is the time in history to know how. And, and finally, people are, are latching onto that. I think that's so right. And as you say, it's having that experience with other people, being with people, as you say, who have experienced what we would call a miracle. Um, and then suddenly you recognize, actually, this isn't perhaps a miracle. Maybe this is something inherent inside me. Maybe this is a power to heal that I was given as my birthright. And that's some of the stuff that I look at because the more I look at the extended human potential of the, of the human being, the more I see extraordinary um, all of the intention work I do. And certainly a lot of the science looking at things like, let's just take remote viewing, that Princeton University's studies of remote viewing 
two thirds of them had a person in the laboratory who was the remote viewer. Then they had a traveling partner who traveled somewhere, some random spot. And, the, uh, and would only find out where he was going when he opened up an envelope. Well, the person got sent to anywhere from someplace around the corner to thousands of miles away. And the remote viewer would have to draw and describe where his partner was going before the partner received his envelope. So this was precognitive. It was all forecasting. And in two thirds of an extraordinary number of cases, using people who are just ordinary folks who weren't talented remote viewers, experienced remote viewers, they had incredible successes and just powerful drawings and descriptions. Now, in terms of healing, in terms of our capacity to heal, you know, we knew this as a child. We knew we had extraordinary possibility, but it's been denigrated by our authority figures and also, of course, by our scientific story. But I've seen it and I think you've seen it. And one thing that you said that was really important was people seeing someone else doing it. What I found in my work that is very powerful in power of eight groups is altruism. Getting out of yourself, getting out of your own sad little story is kind of central to a group experience. You have to give more than you receive. And when people are stuck on, you know, and they're not getting better, most of the time I'll just say, get off of yourself. Just focus on someone else for a moment and just see what happens. Now, one of the more extraordinary cases we had in one of the last talks, physical in-person talks I gave a year ago before COVID, et cetera, was a, uh, at, uh, in London, group of about seven, 800 people. And uh, I put people in groups, power of eight groups and had them send healing intention to a member of the group with a health challenge as I usually do. And I ask after that, okay, anybody got a story they wanna talk about? And so lots of people stand up and say, you know, well, I had a pain, it's gone. I have, you know, I, I can bend more with my arthritic knee, et cetera, et cetera. So the last person, a whole group says, you've got to talk to her, Maya. So Maya was sitting in the front there and she was in a motorized wheelchair. She was paralyzed from the neck down. Now she had some weird idiopathic paralysis, young woman in her late twenties. And this was tragic because she was a dancer and they did, doctors didn't know what had happened. It was no accident or falling or anything. Um, so she's sitting there and I say, okay, Maya. And she gets up, she stands up. I've got it on video. <laughs> the organizers videoed it. Um, and I was just, flabbergasted, as was the audience. And she stood up and she said, I'm standing, I'm standing. And she talked and she moved like a normal person. So I was so fascinated by this, I phoned her afterward and I uh, interviewed her and basically said, okay, Maya, what was the moment? What happened? And she said, I felt more love from all of that group than I ever have in my life. In fact, it was too much for me so I had to pass some of it on. So she passed it to a relative who had stage four cancer. 
And she said it was weird at that moment. She felt like her wheels were going through the floor of her wheelchair, you know, her wheels of her wheelchair were going through the floor and that suddenly she didn't need them anymore. It was really fascinating, but a real insight into what happens. And I see that with the folks on, in my Power of Eight groups in the master class, because we're following them all year long. You know, we had a woman who was deaf in one year because of uh, radiotherapy. And her group just kept doing intentions for her, focusing on a picture of a perfect ear. And she suddenly recognized that she could hear. We've had many more cases of cancer where the group effect seems to the combo of the love, altruism, the getting off of yourself, focusing on some of the someone else for a good part of the time helps you ascend to that place you're talking about, Joe. Mm. Yeah, I, I think uh, altruism is an important element because one of the well, the 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 modus operandi that we use in our work is in order to begin to affect reality, albeit your body or something uh, external from you, you have to marry a clear intention with an elevated emotion. And that requires a coherent brain and a coherent heart. So we practice creating coherence in both of those organs. And many people will say in a whole week long event, I'm struggling because I can't really open my heart. I can't really feel love. I can't really, I, I, and I always say to them, well, what do you practice feeling? Because whatever you practice feeling is what you get good at feeling. So there's a kind of a turnaround that has to take place for many people. But one of the fundamental moments for many people is when they have the opportunity to heal another person. Because the act of giving you can't give without opening your heart. The, the giving releases nitric oxide. Nitric oxide releases a cascade of chemicals that causes the arteries in your heart to literally swell. So the act of giving is, a, is the act of uh, opening our hearts. And as we start to open our hearts because we're giving, that's a selfless act where we have to take our attention off ourselves. And those people that have been trying the whole entire week to finally, you know, to feel love, the moment they take their attention off themselves and put it on somebody else, and they realize it never was about them, it was about giving that, 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 that moment where they could actually get out of the way and give, give life to another person's life, to love another person in the life. That's that moment where they realize that's exactly how we have to open our hearts. So practicing the act of giving and at the same time practicing opening our hearts and, and doing it, going against all the survival chemicals of fear and aggression and pain that are causing arousal in the body to move out of balance. When all the conditions in your environment are saying to close your heart, that's natural and that's normal. We have to do something that's supernatural. And that is that we have to practice getting into that place where we, we can go against those survival chemicals and train our body to feel safe enough to be move into that creative state. And, and, and once again, teaching people how to do that a lot of times requires them to get beyond themselves, that, that, it's, that, that the survival chemicals and stress hormones cause us to become selfish. The act of giving is a selfless act and it's that very act of giving uh, and opening our hearts that actually begins to heal us. Uh, and I know that you've seen this numerous times. We see this so often that when people are healing another person, 
<laughs> they're getting healed in the process themselves because they're they're in such an elevated state that the body's actually experiencing the emotion of healing and it's changing their biology and people we had a person that was on dialysis for years that was administrating a healing that came off her dialysis just by healing another person i mean so people need to know uh how deep this rabbit hole goes because if you show up every day in the intention experiment groups and and you want to be profoundly efficient at healing and you're not doing it to create another identity but you're doing it really to have a resource or a skill that you could use for people in your life and not want anything from it except witnessing that person's story like you, we drop in on the healing groups that we have around the uh, around the world and i i love to listen to the stories of a mother coming on and telling the story of how her daughter was unresponsive and couldn't make eye contact and had a birth defect and after three or four healings, the, the child is engaging, can look at her, her uh, siblings and begin to speak. It's, it's not that that matters the most. What matters the most is the emotion of the healers when they're sitting there and everybody has tears in their eyes because they knew on some level they changed the person's life. And we do it for that feeling. So every time we're successful or every time we can change a person's life and we celebrate the emotion of a mother whose child is responding to her uh, to her other uh, uh, her other children and we're all on the phone uh, all on the zoom call crying that emotion then will help you I'm certain the next time you heal that you'll be able to get more into that feeling uh, even more and then when you feel that feeling all the time and you feel so whole and so connected and so in love with life that you no longer want anything, you're no longer in separation, then the only thing you wanna do is, is have people feel the way you feel. And the only thing you can do when you feel that way is to give. And as you give more then, here comes more of that energy, more of those emotions. And, and now, the person's, now the person is no longer doing it for any other reason, but because they, they wanna feel more love. They wanna feel more of that feeling and then measure the effects that you can change another person's life. Uh, the game changes dramatically, I think. No, you're absolutely right, Joe. And there's, you know, there's so much science that supports altruism. You know, I was starting when I started seeing these kinds of healings in these power of eight groups, you know, the journalist in me, the investigative reporter in me kept asking, well, why? You know, what what's the bottom line here? And I looked at altruism and altruism truly is like a bulletproof vest. The more you do for other people, the healthier, happier and um, longer living you are. I mean, they found even studies of people who lose their jobs, Americans who lose their jobs, who are in the lowest income bracket, don't suffer depression or illness as long as they have two things, a strong spirituality, a strong spiritual sense, and even more important, a strong spiritual community, a community that comes and helps. So it's connection as well as altruism that is really important, but you see, People who are sick, who do things for other people with the same illness, they get better. They're more likely to get better. So there's extraordinary things like that. And in our Power of Eight groups, we find when the people are stuck, when they do something for someone else, I've seen this 
with Lisa, who was stuck trying to write a best-selling book. She was a bodywork practitioner, and she wanted to write a book on healing trauma. Um, she had a really great practice that she was doing. She wanted to tell the world, never had written a book before, was getting nowhere, had gone through three editors, go, pulling her hair out. And her group, she was working with her group, getting nowhere. So I finally said, Lisa, get off of yourself. Intend for somebody who's got more of an issue, who needs help more. So she did. She intended for someone who had really, you know, a financial problem. And at the end of, I think at the, I think at the end of that day, she had this uncontrollable urge to go into the shop she didn't even need to buy anything from. She goes in there, she bumps into someone she had been introduced to before, but what she didn't know was the woman who got talking to her was it was a book coach, an ex-publisher. And when she heard of Lisa's project, she offered to walk her through the whole process, including the marketing. Upshot is Lisa wrote an Amazon bestseller. And that happens over and over again, where I see as soon as people let go and start helping someone else, something in the universe or their feeling of worthiness, because they're actually helping with an open heart, not with an expectation of return. That seems to be the healer. Now, I see this a lot with not only the power of eight groups, because that in itself is a group, you gotta, you gotta send intention to seven other people and then it's your turn. So you have to be altruistic, but I see it in the big intention experiments I do. For the listeners that on your side, Joe, don't know about what I do, since 2007, I've been running a thing called the Intention Experiment. I work with scientists around the world, and every so often I invite my readers or an actual audience, if I'm speaking somewhere, to send an intention to some well-controlled target. So I've done 36 of them to date. 32 has shown measurable, positive, mostly significant effects. The most recent ones I've been doing, though, have been looking at healing polarized communities. So this was not by design, this was by accident. I set up an intention experiment where I wanted to put polarized people as part of a Zoom call that would be broadcast out um, on Facebook and elsewhere um, on the 17th of January, right before the inauguration. It was to lower violence for the inauguration. Now, I did not know, I organized this before January 6th, so I didn't know there was going to be this massive storming on the Capitol. But what we did do in this group was, I had, a, I had some Republicans, I had some Democrats, I had an African-American, uh, several African-Americans, I had a representative of the police, I had an ex-Jihadi, I had somebody else who believed that everything about COVID was a vast conspiracy. We had a massive batch of different people and they all came on and did it together. And we found that it was extraordinary. Afterward, the heart leapt across the fence. People were sending love to each other. These polarized people were starting to connect. And that had happened in a big intention experiment I did for Jerusalem a few years ago. We had Arabs and Israelis. And after doing the experiment, almost didn't matter what the target was. The act of coming together, essentially in secular prayer, helped the heart leap across the fence. And 
when you look at the science about that and you look at what happens with the vagus nerve when you do something compassionate or altruistic, it turns on, and you know all about this, Joe, and it, it helps you connect more with people who are not like you. So one of the extraordinary things about, I think, group intention is also this ability to heal the heart and let the heart leap across the fence. And when I surveyed people who are part of this experiment a few weeks ago, I found that people were saying they were not worried about COVID anymore. They were less triggered when they talked to somebody who was of a different political party. There were all kinds of healings going on as well. People overcame migraines and this and that and the other. And it is, I think, that moment of coming together in a group, doing something you know, it's not just, it's not just a good thing to do. It's the only thing to do. It's an essential thing to do for your own healing and for everybody else's. I absolutely agree. Well said. This is Lynn McTaggart, helping you to live the new science Keep listening, and I'll continue to give you information and tips each time about how to incorporate this new information into your life. And don't forget to check out all my resources for living the new science, including courses, books, live events, and more on my website, www.lynnmctaggart.com. Thanks for listening.